We have uh, been in a series of sermons that we're wrapping up today called Letting Go of Anxiety. We're going to start a new series on the book of Jonah next week. But if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it one last time, back to the passage that we have centered this series around, Philippians chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 6 in just a moment. I'll join you there at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 in just a moment. I think many of you here this morning would agree with me that expectations always shape our reactions. In other words, how we expect something to be will determine how we react to whatever it actually is. For example, a number of years ago, I was contacted by a recruiting firm on behalf of a church to interview for their lead pastor position. I didn't know anything about the church, so the recruiting firm sent me a packet that the church had developed describing themselves. It was a large church. And in the description of the church, it said that it had a baptism lake, a baptism lake. Well, I had seen some large churches with baptism lakes, and it really seemed like a pretty cool, if not expensive, uh, way to do baptisms. And these churches that had these baptism lakes had done some elaborate work to create these small man-made lakes, including not only the excavation, but also elaborate landscaping around the lake. Most of them had a fountain in the middle of the lake. They even, some of them had even brought in, in fact, all of them had brought in sand to create a little beach on the edge of the lake, sometimes even had a volleyball net up there. Seemed like a lot of money, but okay, it was beautiful. I could see how it would be a really cool, fun feature. So when my wife and I arrived to visit that church, we were expecting to see a baptism lake in front of the church, just like the ones that we had seen before. But there wasn't one. We got there, there wasn't a baptism lake in front of the church. Okay, that's fine. I guess it must be somewhere else on the campus. At some point during the visit, we climbed into the car of the person who was responsible to take us around and show us around the city. But before we left the church, he drove us to the edge of the parking lot. He pointed out into an adjoining field, and he said, oh, by the way, there's our baptism lake. Now, my wife is by nature very restrained and very polite, but she will tell you what she thinks. And the difference between what we were expecting and what we saw was so great that she just blurted out, that's not a baptism lake, that's a snake-infested stagnant pond. Who would ever get baptized in that? (laughs) And things went downhill from there. Now, if they would have just told us in their material, if they just said, look, there's a small green stagnant, perhaps snake-infested pond with algae in it near the building, we would have just said, oh, yeah, there it is, huh? Same body of water, you see, but very different reactions based upon expectations. Well, the reason that we have spent so much time on this series on anxiety is not only that anxiety is such a significant issue in our culture, it is, but also because I think many of us don't have the right expectations regarding how change takes place in the Christian life. Many of us expect that if we're experiencing anxiety, that we just say a prayer and presto, we'll begin to experience peace. But that is absolutely not how change happens in the Christian life. But when it doesn't happen that way, Many people become disillusioned, disappointed with Christianity and say, well, it doesn't work. 
And then they go on Amazon or they drive to their local bookstore thinking that they need some kind of self-help book to help them with their anxiety. My hope is that by sheer repetition over the weeks, you've at least begun to see that any real change in the Christian life, whether it's change from anxiety to peace or any other kind of change, is a result of an ongoing intentional effort on your part to renew your mind. That's the model that we have seen in this passage in Philippians 4 over and over and over again. So I want to look back now at Philippians chapter 4. I want to read this passage one last time, and I want to close out the series this morning with a couple of thoughts that I hope you will be able to take with you in summary. Let's go back. Let's read it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, wait just a minute. It seems like that this is saying that you do just pray and then presto, peace. But, but that's not the case. You have to understand that the beginning of this passage, the first half of this passage, is predicated on the last half of this passage. The last half of this passage is what drives you to do the prayer with thanksgiving when you experience anxiety, all right? So, finally, brothers, whatever's true, Paul says, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, so it is Memorial Day weekend. Not many people here today, not a lot of energy. So what I need from you today is to compensate for the people that aren't here. So when I tell a joke that's funny, I want you to laugh really loud, like over laugh. When I tell a joke that's not really funny, I want you to over laugh, laugh really loud, okay? Give me some energy, give me some feedback this morning, all right? You with me? It's going to be a long morning. Okay, let's wrap up this series by talking about One thing you must be if you want to let go of anxiety, and one thing you must not believe if you want to let go of anxiety. One thing you must be if you want to let go of anxiety, and one thing you must not believe if you want to let go of anxiety, okay? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This is how we're going to close the series out. And let's start with one thing that you must be. And I know I've made this point, perhaps ad nauseum, throughout this series, that the word in verse 8 that is translated think, it's the Greek word logizomai, it's a word that means to meditate upon something, to think deeply about something, to be intentional in your thinking about something. And in this case, the object of that thinking is this list of words that Paul mentions in verse 8. Paul says you have to meditate on these words and the implications of these words for the circumstances that you find yourself in that are creating anxiety in life. Not because they're magical words, but it's because these words represent the kind of thoughts that a person who has believed in Christ is now able to fill their mind with. In other words, these are kingdom of God reality thoughts. These are the kinds of things that you can think now that you're a person who's part of the kingdom of God. You see, before that, you would have never thought these kind of things. 
Now that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can fill your mind with these kinds of things. All of this is what the Apostle Paul calls renewing your mind. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Another passage. But, and I hope you will listen to me on this. Some of you live with anxiety. I say some of you, not all of you. I recognize that anxiety can be genetic. But for some of you, the reason that you don't experience this peace that transcends circumstances is that you aren't ferocious about renewing your mind. And one thing you must be if you want to let go of anxiety is ferocious about renewing your mind. You must be ferocious about renewing your mind. Now, here's what I mean. Many of you come here on Sundays, you listen to the message like this one, and you think to yourself, oh, that's nice. That's a really good point. I'm going to underline that in my Bible. I'm going to write that down somewhere. Never thought of that before. But you know what happens? You get busy. You get busy with your work or your kids or your social life or whatever. And busy people aren't ferocious about renewing their mind. Busy people are ferocious about other things, but not renewing their minds. You're ferocious about your, your career. You're ferocious about getting your kids into every sport you can get them into in every season. You're ferocious about making sure that you're at the right social events. But when it comes to renewing your mind with spiritual truth, there's a kind of passivity, a kind of sleepiness, an indifference almost. There's no ferocious, proactive thinking. Because the busy person is too busy to really think about the implications of their beliefs deeply. Busy people want to believe that there's some other way to experience peace. To stay busy and yet to be peaceful. Surely there's a pill I can take or a self-help book that I could thumb through. And by the way, I'm not knocking medication if you need it to help deal with your anxiety. That's often very legitimate. I'm just saying that for many of you, you need to understand that there is no way to be busy and to be ferocious about renewing your mind at the same time. And so you live with anxiety and pressure and worry because you don't meditate on these words. You're not intentional about these words and thinking out how they affect the circumstances of your life. The Bible says that we have to find time. We have to make time to be still. I know that what I'm saying here is countercultural because being busy is the way that you signal to everybody that you're important, that, you're, uh, that your life is meaningful. Be busy. How you been lately? Oh, I've been busy. Busy doing what? I'm watching Netflix, you know, playing games. But you have to say it. You're busy. Okay? The Bible says that we have to find time to do the exact opposite, to be countercultural, to be still, and to think deeply about the implications of our beliefs on life and on the circumstances that might create anxiety in our life, okay? So some of you are busy and you're not ferocious. There are others of you, though. You've been at some point in your life ferocious about learning the Bible. You've got notes, you've got books, you've got workbooks, but you haven't been ferocious about putting truth into practice. So like when circumstances hit your life, you fall to pieces because you aren't ferocious enough about putting truth 
into practice. Things get hard. The feelings of anxiety associated with your old ways of thinking just feel too real, too strong. And so instead of bringing your renewed mind to bear on your circumstances, you cave in to the old patterns of thinking that have always left you anxious. Look at what Paul says in verse 9 again. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. If you want to let go of anxiety, if you want to experience peace, you have to be ferocious about not just learning truth, but putting your renewed mind into practice. Because these aren't magic words, you see, this list of words in verse 8. You have to bring this renewed mind to bear on the circumstances of your life, especially in the very worst circumstances of your life. And you know what? Here's the thing. It won't feel real for a while. It won't feel natural. It's a bit like trying to get in shape after you've gotten out of shape. Anyone here a runner? Raise your hand if you're a runner. Anybody here? Okay, great. Got got some runners here. I don't run much anymore. I used to be a runner. Uh, Used to run a lot, in fact. And then I uh, got married, had kids, uh, you know, job, work, all of that stuff, and running kind of fell by the wayside maybe, you know, five years or so. And then I decided, this was back in my 30s, I decided one day that I was going to get back in shape and start running again. Nothing about getting back in shape feels right when you're first starting to get back in shape. Would you agree with me? You know what, here, here's what feels right. Your recliner, the couch, a good TV show and a bag of Cheetos or a bowl of ice cream or both. That's what feels right. But getting back in shape, it feels terrible. No matter how much people tell you that it's good for you, it doesn't feel good or natural, not at the beginning. And I can remember back then when I first started trying to get back in shape, I'd be breathing so hard, it sounded like I was having an asthma attack, and my heart was pumping so loud, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Sweating profusely, my legs were, camp- uh, my legs were cramping, and all of that was just while I was stretching. It felt terrible for quite a while. There comes a day, and runners, you know what I'm talking about. If you stick with it, you notice that it begins to feel really good to run. In fact, if you don't run, it doesn't feel good. Your body begins to tell you, you need to go for a run. You get that kick of endorphins, that that runner's high, they call it, and you get into this rhythm, and it just feels great, and it becomes, it's like one of the best feelings in the world. Well, the same kind of thing happens when you begin to bring your renewed mind to bear upon your circumstances. Something that causes anxiety happens. And you say, uh, you, you know, you say, wait a minute, let me think this out. And you begin to think through these words in verse 8. What is true in this circumstance? Uh, what is admirable in this situation? What is lovely in this situation? Because of those things, you say to yourself, I don't have to feel all of this anxiety. But at first, it won't feel right. It won't feel natural. Your old thoughts and behaviors, they're going to feel a lot more natural. You're going to feel inauthentic. Anxiety's still going to be there. You're going to think this stuff doesn't work at first, at first. But as you do it, repeatedly, daily, over time, through the assistance of the Holy Spirit, 
you will begin to experience more and more and more of the peace of Christ in the midst of your circumstances. This peace that transcends all understanding. Okay? So if you want to let go of anxiety, one thing you must be is ferocious about renewing your mind. And I said this earlier in the series. If you look at the list of words here in this passage, there's, there's, well, there's eight words, but actually there's seven breaks, okay? So there's like one word for each day of the week. Amazing how that works out, isn't it? One word for every day of the week. My suggestion to you is that you take one of these words every day. Take a different word every day. Take, take a word tomorrow on Monday. Take the word true and just take a little time, five minutes if that's what you've got, Take five minutes and just think, how does truth affect the world that I live in? How does the truth that there is a God in the world affect the world that I live in and the circumstances that I'm facing that are creating my anxiety? And then the next time, the next day, take the word noble and just keep doing that every day, every day. And over time, This peace that transcends all circumstances will begin to feel very natural. It just takes a lot of work. Okay, so that's one thing that you must be if you want to let go of anxiety. You've got to be ferocious about renewing your mind. Okay, now, second thing. Here's one thing that you cannot believe. I want to talk about that now. One thing that you cannot, under any circumstances, that you must not believe. In verse 8, Paul has listed all of these words that we've looked at over the course of these previous weeks. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable. And then he comes to the final two words. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, be ferocious in your thinking about such things. Now, the question, of course, is what does he mean by excellence or praiseworthy. And frankly, it's a little hard to tell if you just restrict yourself to this passage because there's not a lot of context around it. It's even a little hard if you just restrict yourself to the rest of Paul's writings in the New Testament because this is the only place that he uses the word excellence. However, another one of the apostles, the apostle Peter, he sheds light on what this word excellence and praiseworthy, what these words mean, because he uses the word excellence four different times in his writings in the New Testament. And the most notable place is at the beginning of his second letter. And I'm just going to put, these, put the verses up on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. Peter tells his readers this. He says, his, he's talking about God, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, I put that word goodness in all caps because I wanted you to understand that that is the same word that is translated excellence in Philippians chapter 4. Okay, same Greek word, just translated goodness here, excellence there, okay, in Philippians 4. Now, I want you to notice how Peter is using this word. He's using it, he's using the word excellent to describe how God goes about calling people into relationship with him. 
like the plan that God uses to call us into relationship with him. He says it's excellent. God, Peter says, called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, what what is he saying? Well, I think maybe the best way to understand this, to really get this, is to think about what he's not saying here. What he's not saying is that God calls us into relationship on the basis of our moral excellence or moral goodness. He doesn't say that, does he? Like, like he didn't say to me uh, many, many years ago, he didn't say, like, hi, Jeff, I've been watching you, and I am so impressed by the quality of your life. You, my friend, are living an excellent life. Come on in. Let's you and I have a relationship together because you're the kind of morally excellent person I want to hang out with. That's not what he said. Trust me, that's not what happened. Exactly the opposite is what actually happened. The prophet Isaiah once saw the moral um, excellence, the pristine purity of God. And here's what Isaiah had to say about all of humanity. This is me. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. After he sees the pristine purity of God, he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And I do not mean to be crude. I'm just telling you that the context here, when he says filthy rags, he's talking about menstrual rags. He's saying, that's what your moral excellence looks like to God. The very best that you have to offer, the best life any human being has ever lived is so far from God's pristine purity that it is like filthy menstrual rags to God. And you see, this is the thing that you must, here's the thing that you must not believe if you want to let go of anxiety. You must not believe that your moral excellence is the basis for your relationship with God. You must not believe that if you want to let go of anxiety. Peter says that God called us by his own glory and moral excellence. What does he mean by that? He's saying that that God provided a way for people like me who are far from being morally excellent to have a relationship with him by sending his son who lived a morally perfect life to pay the penalty for my moral deficiencies, for my sin. So that when I believed on him and Jesus' death on the cross, that there is this exchange that takes place where I was given credit for the moral excellence of Christ and Christ was given the punishment for my moral deficiencies. Okay? And if you think about it, What are we really talking about here? What are we really talking about here? We're talking about the gospel. The excellent and praiseworthy plan by which God found a way for broken sinners to have relationship with him. So back in Philippians 4, when Paul says, think about anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, he's talking about the gospel. He's saying, think about that. Think about the implications of that if you want to let go of anxiety. See, if you want to let go of anxiety, you must not under any circumstances believe that your moral excellence is the basis for your relationship with God. 
you will never experience real peace if you believe that. Paul says, if you want to let go of anxiety, you have to believe in the excellent and praiseworthy way that God found to restore broken sinners to relationship with him, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now, here's something that I've learned over the years that I've been in ministry. Christians think that the gospel is for people who don't believe in Christ yet. They need to hear the gospel. But what I've learned over the years is that Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians need to hear the gospel. And do you know why? Because here's what Christian people tend to do. You come to faith by believing in the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. You believe the good news of God's excellent and praiseworthy plan to rescue you, and you believe that it's not your moral excellence, it was his. You get that when you first come to believe in Jesus, okay? That's how you come into the faith. But then, here's what I found. Christian people, after they've become a believer in Christ, like here's what you do. You start to try to make your moral excellence the basis for your ongoing relationship with God. So like you started believing that it was Christ's excellence, and then you start believing it's yours. And it creates enormous anxiety and stress and pressure in your life. You listen to some pastor somewhere who tells you that, uh, like, that you have to read the Bible so much every day, and you have to pray so long every day, and you have to evangelize so many people every week. And then all of a sudden you begin to realize, I'm not doing all of those things. And you begin to feel stress and anxiety. Because you think that your relationship, now that you're a believer, is based upon your moral excellence. And it robs you of any peace that you might experience. But that is not the gospel. You know what that is? That's religion. And I want to show you the best way that I've ever found to explain to people the difference between religion and the gospel. Here it is. We're going to put up on the screen for you. Religion says this. Religion says believe plus obey, and then you're saved. Like then you're in the good graces of God. Believe plus, yes, believe in Jesus, but you also have to obey in order to be saved, to be in the good graces of God. Okay. Now think about the anxiety that this creates. What if I fail to obey? What if there's something out there that I wasn't aware of that I didn't obey? What if I missed something? Jesus said that if you want to qualify for a relationship with God on the basis of your own moral excellence, here's the standard, he said. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone here think you qualify? Anyone here think you're perfect? Now, look, I realize that a lot of people don't want to raise their hands in church Uh, because it feels kind of embarrassing. But if you're thinking in your head, yeah, I think I do qualify. I'm perfect. Let me just suggest that you talk to three people around you and just ask them, am I perfect? And when they're done laughing, you have your answer, all right? Nobody meets up to that. The gospel says something very different than religion. Now, I'm going to show you this. It might not on the surface look very different, but the implications are enormous. Here's the gospel. 
The gospel says, believe and you're saved. Therefore, obey. Now that's very different. Do you see it? Gospel says, believe in Christ's moral excellence. Believe in what he did on the cross for you and you're saved. In the gospel, you're not scratching and clawing for your own status here or in the hereafter because it is in the excellence of the Lord Jesus that you're secure here and forevermore. You're not having to constantly worry that maybe you missed something. Maybe you didn't obey somewhere like you should have or like you could have because your relationship with God is not based upon your obedience. It's not based on your moral excellence, but on God's own moral excellence displayed in his son, Jesus Christ. In short, if you look at those equations, In the gospel, obedience has been taken out of the equation of your standing before God. Do you know why? Because the standard is what? Jesus said it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you ain't perfect, and neither am I. And so God said, I have to find a way to take imperfect people and make it possible to have a relationship with me. And so he says, I'm sending my son who will live a morally excellent, pure, pristine life. And he will die on the cross for their sins so that his morally pure, pristine life will be credited to them and their sins will be credited to him. That's the exchange that takes place. Now, yes, that is true for people who've never believed in Christ. If you have never believed in Christ, you need to understand that, that Your moral excellence will never stand as the basis for your relationship with God. If you're sitting here thinking to yourself, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Just think what Isaiah said a little while ago, that your goodness is shot through with sin. It is tarnished. It's filthy rags before God. You need to come to a moment, if you've never believed in Christ, in which you admit that, You can't be perfect in which you trust in Jesus' moral excellence instead of your own. But you also need to understand this is equally true for those of you who have believed in Jesus. You need to remember the gospel, that your moral excellence is not now, has never been, and never will be the basis for your standing before God. The motivation for obedience in the gospel is not that you've been, is not that you have to obey to be saved. You don't obey out of fear. You don't live in anxiety about the times you haven't obeyed. You don't live looking over your shoulder all the time at your failures. In the gospel, you obey because you can't believe God would do such a wonderful and gracious thing for you. And so you obey out of love, imperfectly, by the way. You don't obey perfectly. I certainly don't, neither do you. If you think you do, ask someone around you. Very imperfectly you obey, but you obey out of love, not out of fear, not out of anxiety, not out of shame, not out of guilt. You obey out of love because you can't believe God would do something like this for you. And so when you find yourself in those times that all of us find ourselves in, when you're overwhelmed by the broken pieces of your own moral failures, you remember the glory of your Savior who died for those sins and who is now putting you back together piece by piece. 
If you want to let go of anxiety, you must not under any circumstances believe that your moral excellence is the basis for your relationship with God. You will never experience peace if that's what you believe. A little over a week ago, I just let me close with this. A little over a week ago, I spent some time with a woman in our church who's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She's been living with it for a long time, but it appears that the end is near. And she wanted to meet with me to plan her memorial service because she had some very specific things that she wanted to make sure that I communicate at at that service. The woman's been a Christian for a long, long time. But she told me that all of her Christian experience was believe plus obey equals your sin. And that she constantly lived under this anxiety and fear and guilt and shame because of that. But she told me that it's only been in the last couple of years that she began to understand that Christianity is, and I quote her, all about Jesus. She said, I learned that Christ is enough. Not Christ plus my Bible study, not Christ plus evangelizing two people a week, not Christ plus a certain number of minutes of prayer each day, not Christ plus my tithe, not Christ plus any kind of obedience, but just Jesus. And she said, Jeff, I have never felt such peace in my soul. Here I am, she said, knowing that one day soon I'm going to die, and all I feel is that I cannot wait to meet Jesus in person. That's peace that transcends all circumstances. And I don't know if you heard what she said or not. But she said, it is not religion that's giving me peace. Not believe in Jesus plus go do something. She's saying, it's the gospel of Jesus only. The gospel of Jesus' excellence that has given her a peace that is transcending all understanding in the midst of her mortal circumstances. And you see, in the end, it is the excellent and praiseworthy gospel that will change you from an anxious person to a peaceful person. You want to let go of anxiety? You must be ferocious about renewing your mind. That's what verse 8 has been all about. You must be ferocious about renewing your mind. And then those last words, excellence and praiseworthy, you must not believe that your moral excellence is the basis for your relationship with God. Would you bow your heads with me? Those of you who are here today who have thought to yourself all of your life that the way to get into God's good graces, to the way to be saved is to be a good person, would you just in this very moment, as a result of what you've heard today, would you acknowledge that you're wrong about that? Would you acknowledge that all of the goodness that you can muster is nothing but filthy rags before God? And would you just believe today in the Lord Jesus Christ, put your confidence in his moral excellence, what he did on the cross, that there on the cross he died for your moral impurity, 
And he did it because he loved you. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. Would you just believe in that? Just say, Lord Jesus, be my savior today. Now, for those of you who have believed before, but every day it seems like you just keep basing your relationship with God, your standing before God on your performance. Would you confess that? Would you own that? And would you just tell, would you just say to God, forgive me for ever placing confidence in my moral excellence. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Lord Jesus, forgive us for ever placing confidence in ourselves. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the, for the excellent and praiseworthy plan of the gospel that comes through your death on the cross and your resurrection. And through that, we get credit for your life and you took our sin. What a marvelous exchange. Lord, give us peace. Give us your peace. Those here who are here today that are struggling with circumstances that are creating anxiety, Lord, would you make this, take this deeply into their souls. Make, them, make us all ferocious people about renewing our minds. And remind us, Lord, that we must not ever believe that it is our moral excellence that is the basis for a relationship with you. And it is in Christ's name, his excellent and praiseworthy name that we pray. Amen. 